gold. Is it the original or the final frontier? These are the voyages of gold bugs everywhere. To boldly seek out the next big strike. The main vein or the mother load, if you like. Men struggle for gold and their innocence fails with greed. Of stinking badges, there is no need. Gold, so pure, non-reactive, incorruptible as can be. Like, like Elon, Jay Clayton, and the SEC. And of course, like me. Ha! Ha 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 ha! Hat tip, treasure of the Sierra Madre. Thank you very much. I think everything sounds pretty good. Hear ye, hear ye, all ye who hear this here podcast, know this. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing discussed on this podcast should be considered investment advice. The hosts hold no licenses and are not financial advisors. Do your own research before making investment decisions. And we do hope you enjoy this podcast. Uh, yeah, we are ready to go. Grant Williams, welcome back to TC's Chartcast. So great that you could join us again. Hey, listen, I, I'm just happy these days to be invited back anywhere. So this is great. Thanks for having me. No, it's wonderful uh, for, the, for the audience's benefit. Grant was uh, an early guest of ours, and we were super appreciative of his blessing of our podcast with his with his appearance, uh, you can go back and listen to episode six if you're interested in, in the sort of full intro and background on on Grant that we would typically do with our guests. We're gonna we're gonna skip that today, but we're we're very interested to talk to Grant for a couple of reasons. Not the least of which is uh, in the post COVID world, he has a lot of new and interesting things going on, and we thought we'd have him on to talk about that. Uh, and then, of course, all the insanity in the market and gold and Tesla and and Nicola and, and all the other things that we'll get into. So let's begin, Grant. Um, we're big fans of yours. We consume everything you put out. And recently you've started a, a couple of new podcasts. Why don't you tell the audience what you've been up to? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, you know, it, it's uh, this lockdown thing has been um, kind of a weird time. You know, as, as we were chatting off mic before we started recording, I, I, I found myself being insanely busy, but at the same time, kind of sitting home and twiddling my thumbs and uh, not on the road as I normally would be, uh, you know, I travel or, or used to travel a lot and hope to get back to doing that at some point. And, um, yeah, I found myself talking to friends and just to try and sound them out what was going on in the markets and stuff. And, and, uh, I'd been a guest on a, on a, a zoom webinar with, uh, with a good buddy of ours, Tommy Thornton. And, um, it was really, it was such a simple thing to do. I hadn't done one of those before. And the, the following day I was chatting with, um, Pippa Malmgren, who's a friend of mine. And we just had this really, really interesting conversation about um, about you know debt jubilees and inflation and all kinds of stuff. And I, and I was just sitting there talking to her. I said, you know, we should record this. It'd be fun for people to listen to. And she very kindly agreed to do that. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, um, I should probably do a few more of these things. So I just called a bunch of people up and said, do you want to do this? And they were all stuck home and so couldn't really say no, bless them. Um, and so we just put this series of interesting conversations together with a really varied group of people and um and the feedback was great so i you know i, I i'm having these conversations anyway i figured it's not much extra work to let people listen in on them so i figured i'd start a podcast uh, and within that i've got a couple of different streams with well three different streams with with three dear friends of mine all kind of in these markets but in different places the first one was um with ben hunt uh, where we talk about the narrative and uh we get together, he and I, on an infrequent basis just to talk about what's going on in the world and, and how that narrative is being constructed. And, and Ben kind of breaks it down in, in real time and explains how these words and phrases are being carefully used to kind of sway opinions. Fascinating stuff. Um, and then uh, Bill Fleckenstein has been a good friend of mine for a long, long time. He and I have started a podcast uh, called The End Game, where you know this is something he and I have been discussing, as I said, for a long, long time, and, and just you know what does the end game look like? And so we figured we'd set off in search of people far smarter than us to ask about it. Um, and we're I think three episodes into that, and again, it's been incredibly well received. And then lastly, another great friend of mine, Stephanie Pomboy, um, who has needed an awful lot of encouragement to come out from uh, the place she likes to hide and hole up 
to uh, to kind of show her chops to the world. But we've uh, we started a podcast called The Super Terrific Happy Hour. Uh, we're both Seinfeld fans, for those of you that figured you'd heard that before. Um, and again, just really talking uh, either between ourselves about what we see going on or, or guests. We've had some fantastic guests. We have Bob Rodriguez, who Steph tempted out of hiding again to talk to us. Um, uh, we had Cy Jacobs come on last week, which was a fascinating conversation. And later on this week, we'll be publishing our most recent conversation with Dave Iben, which is all about value investing. And again, just just really interesting people, great conversations, and you know, I think valuable uh, now. So it, really, it's that's a very long answer to a nice brief question. The short answer is I was bored, and I figured I should do something to fill the time. Well, you're certainly filling your time in very productive ways, and and we're all the beneficiaries of that. Uh, with your different conversations that you're having, you're covering really quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of ground with the Ben Hunt side of things talking about narrative and certainly he's done a lot of writing on not only coronavirus but also the protests and the way that the activities around those are being communicated the words that people are using the actions that they're taking and then you've got Stephanie where you end up talking a lot about um, you know the larger macroeconomic influences and and then Bill Fleckenstein where you've got folks talking about really some of the day-to-day trading you know things that are happening then how all this translates into the market Um, these are large pills to swallow big topics to digest as you've been privy to all of them, what are you uh, kind of coalescing? What, how has your view changed today than it was, say, three months ago or four months ago as you were gearing these topics up with folks? And, and maybe even as you've put them out into the world, as you said, you're recording conversations you were otherwise having anyways. Has even that interaction with the community listening to these different topics kind of helped coalesce any of that? What, what are you drawing from it? Well, I think the, f- the first thing uh, I've realized, and, and I never figured I was one of the smart guys in the first place, but I'm now finding out just how dumb I am talking to these people. And it's, it's, it's great. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's very challenging to, to talk to really smart people about complex ideas. But, but how else do you get smarter, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole idea is, is to have these conversations in the hope of getting smarter. And, and it really was, I um, said, so the idea was to, to, to create a fly on the wall experience and, and for people to listen to me ask, ask the dumb questions and then listen to the smart answers and, and you know, people can, can take from that what they want to. I mean, these, these podcasts, they're dense and they're, you know, the feedback we've been getting from people is people have listened to them multiple times um, to try and really understand some of the concepts being talked about. And I think that's great. I mean, it, it's not just because people listen to the podcast uh, and it's not something that you get halfway through and turn off. But, but I think these, these ideas and, and, and the situation that the world is in at the moment are so big that it behooves all of us to really try and understand it better. And so when you have the, the, the great gift of people like Mike Green uh, and Steph and Bill and James Aitken and, and some of our wonderful guests offering their thoughts on this stuff, um, it's just a great opportunity if, if you're willing to invest the time at your end to understand how other people see the world, to, to kind of synthesize a lot of different viewpoints, synthesize information. And, you know, it, look, it's okay to, to disagree with this and decide that these guys don't know what they're talking about. That's, that's all part of the exercise, right? I mean, if you, if you test your own theories and you, you, you've got the balls to say that Mike Green's an idiot, then go for it. That's absolutely fine. Um, but uh, but the flip side of that is you, you'll find that your ideas get challenged. You'll find that things you thought uh, work one way work another way. Um, and, and perhaps we can talk about that in a second with, with this latest podcast with Mike Green. But um, but really, it, it's 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 such a confusing time. And on on one level, if you look at it, the markets just seem to go up every day. And so you'd think that that's actually nice and simple, right? That's it's, you just buy equities, they go up. Listen to Dave Portnoy, um, they just go up. And of course, optically they are. And of course, this is what always happens right before they start going down. Uh, and so the, the the kind of cerebral investor is going to be looking to challenge that stocks go up every day narrative and stress test it every day and figure out well, why they're going up. Is this something I can? I can be long of, or should I be cautious? And so that's really what we're trying to do. And um, you know, there's there's a lot of smart people with a lot of great experience, who fortunately are, are, are open to sharing those thoughts with me and Bill and Steph and Ben and 
the audience out there. And I think it's a great gift they're giving to the world. Absolutely. And, and just before I launch into my question, I'll just give the audience a heads up. All of these podcasts can be found by searching the Grant Williams podcast. And so you don't have to go look for the different individual podcasts. They all come out under Grant's feed. You know, if you're on iTunes, um, the podcast uh, app, you can just search Grant Williams podcast and, and you'll get all of the shows. Thanks for that. I should have done that myself, shouldn't I? <laughs> I'm terrible at this. Well, it's okay. We're, we're good marketers here, so we're always happy to help our guests who are kind enough to come on our show. Um, and I do think you're underselling yourself a little bit. So I think you have a very one of the reasons that you're popular. Um, there are several. Um, first and foremost, you're a very nice giving person, and, and we've been the recipient of that, and we appreciate it. Um, but also you have a really strong ability to distill complexity and to explain things to a wider audience that maybe some of your guests might struggle to explain just given the manner in which they speak. And I think a great example of that is your most recent episode with Mike Green, who's brilliant, clearly. Um, very, very thought-provoking. Um, but he also speaks in a way that is, is very dense. Um, and it's, it's actually a compliment to him. Um, and, and I find that you and, and Fleck are able to um, pull the answers out of him and ask the questions in a way that the audience can follow along. But uh, for those that haven't listened, it's, must, it's a must listen. And I thought maybe uh, our audience could benefit from a bit of a primer so that they know what they'd be getting into. But I, I, having just listened to it in preparation for having you on today, I fully intend to go back and listen to it again. Why don't you sort of summarize that episode? Because it is really profound. Um, I'd heard him on Dimitri's podcast, um, Hidden Forces, to hear him again sort of really layers down the next level of understanding of this really profound point that he's making. Do you think you could summarize um, to the extent possible what Mike <laughs> has been, the work that Mike has been doing and, and some of the potentially very profound conclusions that flow from it? Well, I, as I say, the, 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 absolutely the best thing to do is actually to listen to Mike because uh, no one can really put it like he does. But uh, I, I think as background, and, and I, I go into this a little bit in that podcast, but I did, let me just recount my the first time I met Mike. Um, because it's it's kind of important to what, what you were just saying that you know I, I was doing a bunch of interviews for Real Vision. This is maybe five years ago, and um, I had I had them all lined up for a day. I was doing like six or seven interviews in a day. It was it was exhausting. And right before Mike came in, I'd, I'd spoken to Jim Grant. And I'd spoken to, uh, to Rosie David Rosenberg, and I, I, Rosie and I had overrun a little bit. And I'm kind of looking at the the sheet and the next guy was due in a couple of minutes and it says Mike Green. I'm like, who the hell is this Mike Green guy? You know, having, having just spoken to two household names, suddenly your mind goes blank. And um, so I called uh, I called the office and just said, oh, I've got this guy coming in, Mike Green, just remind me, who the hell is he? And uh, they said, oh, he, he, your buddy Charlie. I said, ah, yeah, got it, got it. Okay, fine. So I remembered who he was. And just as I did that, it, the, the door knocked. So I opened the door and there's Mike. Um, sick as a dog and you know I, I went to shake his hand he said like, I won't shake your hand I've, 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 uh, you know, I've had a terrible cold and I don't want to give you anything and whatever so in he comes we sit down and God bless him for, for coming in and doing this because he really was sick as a dog and the camera start rolling and I, I ask him my first question I, I don't remember what it was and you know fast forward to an hour later and, and my jaw is on the floor I mean I'm just staggered by two things the, the, the size of this guy's intellect and the the way he is able to communicate these complex ideas, um, to your point, and, and it, it, I mean it's truly extraordinary. And, I, and Mike, you know, we finished up chatting, and Mike left, and I and I, and I called the guys and said, I, I think I've just met one of the smartest people in the world. It's just ridiculous. Um, and since then, you know, I've I've been a huge fan of Mike's. So I've been fortunate enough to get to know him uh, pretty well, and we've spent a bunch of time together. And uh, you know, every chance I get to listen to him, I take. Because he is he is a really really big thinker, and, and this podcast demonstrated that. And you know, we, we, we Fleck and I were in search of of the end game, and, and Mike um, opened up uh, his thoughts on the subject by saying, "I have no clue what the end game is. I don't even know if there is an end game. There probably isn't." And he's right. Obviously, there isn't an end game as such because markets carry on. Um, but he he started talking about some of the work he'd done back in the nineties, tr trying to understand you know when markets go crazy. Um, and Fleck has been on this crusade for a couple of decades now, talking about the Fed and putting everything on, at the feet of the Fed and the Greenspan put. Uh, and, you know, Fleck has kind of pinned down the mid-90s as to when things started to get away from the Fed and when they started to just 
do the self-reinforcing behavior that, that really got markets confident and, and skewed the natural uh, optimism and caution amongst investors. But what Mike was saying was that he, he'd actually pin it down to the same time, but he looked at the rise of passive investing. And he's done a hell of a lot of work. And if you go to the Logica Funds website, logicafunds.com, you'll find Mike's work on that site. And they very kindly put it out for free and, and download them as a three-part series. Um, I mean, extraordinary. They'll, they'll, they will take you a couple of read-throughs to understand. But they, they went through and they analyzed just what the rise of passive has meant to, to markets. And, and they pegged it back to that same time period, but as BlackRock and Vanguard have, have started to rise, uh, so has this phenomenon um, really caught hold. And, and when Mike goes through, and, and I really, you know, I, I, you're so much better off listening to Mike talk about it because he's, he's put the work in. He's done so much research on this stuff. Uh, and he'll give you all the all the numbers and the data, and I, and I don't want to preempt that. Um, and this isn't just a shameless attempt to make more people listen to my podcast. Um, but uh, you know, the example Mike gave, where he was looking at uh, he was looking at the, the Shanghai stock market and noticing periods where the market just was on fire. And the narrative at the time was that um, oh, you know, the Chinese are just inveterate gamblers; they can't help themselves. It's just crazy, and the market's going up just because they're gambling. Um, and Mike looked at the data and looked at the charts. So, well, you know, why is it this only really happened once? If if that's the way things are, why do you not see this pattern repeated? And so he started looking into it, and he he realized that the Chinese market was small. And we looked at the data; they have they have limit up and limit down levels on those exchanges. And he realized that during a, a period where um, institutional investors were trying to put money into Chinese markets. They would put their bids in for these stocks, and without trading, these things would be limit up, untraded. So you had, I think the example he gave, I think I'm right in saying, was 35 straight days for one stock, limit up without trading, and the limit up is seven or ten percent. So these things were going crazy without any volume going through whatsoever. Um, it was just a function of um, trying to pour an awful lot of water through a tiny funnel into a market that wasn't ready to handle it. And you know, to, to, to Mike's point, when you look at the free float in, in the US equity markets today, um, you know, they started off examining insiders, and, and, and that was always a good uh, benchmark for ebbs and flows in the market, what the insider's doing. But as, as the, insider, um, the insider's flow, uh, the insider's holdings has increased and buybacks have taken free float out the market, he's identified that there's a very similar dynamic in play in the US to that which we had in China. It's not the same level, obviously, which is why you're not seeing the kind of moves you saw in China on a stock-by-stock basis. Um, but the same the same uh, dynamic is playing out in, in US markets now. And, it, and it's, it's interesting to watch it on the way up. Uh, and the lesson, I think, that everybody probably needs to, to learn once they've listened to Mike and start to do their own research is, you know, just take a look at what happened when that turned, when that Chinese equity market turned. Um, it's it's a horrific chart, and and it's akin to 1929-30. It's akin to 1999-2000. Uh, you know, the, these things tend to end the same way, um, and so it, it's just it's just fascinating to 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 find someone who has really looked at something in a way that so many people pay lip service to passive investing, but Mike's really done the work on it. Uh, and if and if you can do work that makes Fleck question his reasoning after you know two solid decades of being highly convinced that, uh, that he was onto what was going on it, it just tells you how good that work is and, and again I don't want I don't want anyone to to use the cliff notes when when listening to the entire thing coming out of Mike's mouth is is so much more valuable than having me paraphrase it so I would strongly endorse anyone to listen to it because it will it will make you think about things in a different way and, and it will either make you feel like it's it's above your head, um, which look it will be. I mean, as I said, Bill and I were clinging on for dear life. But but I, I think listening to thinking of this order is an important thing for everybody to do. And, and even if you're kind of grasping at it, taking the time to to rewind it a little bit and and, and think about what they're saying and, and you know pausing it and processing it is is a, a really important exercise. It is an incredibly uh, compelling listen. And I think timing is everything as well. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you had interviewed Mike Green previously in your Real Vision days. I've heard him be interviewed on Hidden Forces. Uh, he has been on other media outlets as well. 
something about listening to him uh, speak with you and Bill Fleckenstein in this most recent episode. I think the timing of what we're seeing in the markets, what you know, TC and I are seeing happening to the Tesla stock, what's happening with the Dave Day Trader global phenomenon, um, the message that Mike Green had in his analysis it hit home in a different way this time around than any time I had listened before. And you're spot on. It is, it was a lot of it very much, you know, it was kind of mind blowing um, listening to it. And yet at the same time, so simple, you think, well, how did, how, how did I not see that before? It's just sitting right there. One of the concepts and I and again I, I totally agree. I don't want to just be cute and say let's just do the cliff notes of your come on our podcast to talk about your podcast, but let's dig into it a little bit deeper in a uh, in a I'd like your your uh, insight onto some of the implications of this. So Mike Green, um, you know, everyone should listen, goes very deep on the implications of the rise of passive investing. And Passive investing essentially is putting money to pl- to work. The money flows in and it goes and buys. The price is always right. Um, it is not, you know, s- searching for price discovery. Essentially, it is is buying at the market. And so, what is the future? As that becomes a bigger and bigger portion of the inflows into the equity market, I believe it's around 40, 45% at the moment that will continue to grow as passive funds come in and boomers retire and those are more discretionary funds. What does value investing look like? What does price discovery look like? Where, I mean, so much must fundamentally change. Well, look, I think think the important thing to understand, and and this was perhaps the the most mind-blowing point that Mike made, certainly judging from some of the comments I've had afterwards, um, price discovery works in both directions. And and that's such an important thing to understand. And and this is something that, you know, I've been talking about and and boring people to death with for a long time. And that is that uh, when you're trading on the bid and the offer, there is always an offer in a stock, right? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, somebody, unless it's suspended, will make you an offer in that stock. Because if you call them out of hours, they're going to call the thing up 10%, 20%, 30%, whatever. But someone will make you an offer. They'll take a chance on selling you that stock at a, at a higher price, thinking they'll be able to cover it um, when the market's open again. The same doesn't work on the bid side. You know, 24 hours a day, there is not a bid. Uh, if you're looking for a bid for a stock, oftentimes people will go, yeah, no bid. Sorry, I, I, I don't want to take on that risk. And so you know, I think Mike's point about this was was absolutely right, that, that, that the price is always right, and so you, you put the money to work, and it, it just goes out and buys stock at whatever price. Is. And, and you know, th- this, this, I suspect, is a, is a big uh, reason behind the flash crashes we've seen. I mean, I, I've thought about this for the longest time. When you get these thin bid stacks and you get um, price-insensitive selling in the form of passive, it's very easy to explain why things suddenly get down uh, 20% and then bounce back in. Everyone thinks that, quote unquote, the system's freaking out or glitching or something, but it, it's actually perfectly explicable and understandable. And so I think what blew people's minds was Mike talking about this passive dynamic and and were things to turn around and uh, trade in the other direction? And were you to see withdrawals from passive, which uh, based on obviously the boomer generation retiring, um, you are coming into that sweet spot now we're, we're in it already where where boomers are retiring and they will be taking withdrawals if passive turns the other way and you start to get outflows then they will sell at any price the same way they buy at any price so consequently you know mike's mike made the point that he, he could see the market going to zero which woke a lot of people up um i don't think anyone's been talking about 100 percent falls in the markets and obviously it's it's uh it's a canard he's putting out there, but um, in principle, there's nothing to stop that happening. Um, particularly as you see sort of active managers disappear and, and fall by the wayside. Um, so again, it was just it was just a it's it's a remarkable phenomenon, and it has become the price setter. And so, with great power comes great responsibility, as somebody famous related to a superhero once said. And these machines and, and these passive strategies do have great power, but the responsibility has been abdicated to a computer, which is programmed to to put money to work in whichever direction it's told. So time's going to tell. Um, 
but uh, if we get a return of the volatility we saw in, in February, March, uh, and people decide that they've had enough of these markets and they start taking money out, which, and again, we talked about this in the podcast, but there are plenty of reasons why the the Fed and, and the administration, the Treasury are so desperate to keep markets together. Um, and, and it seems it seems spurious to try and keep the stock market up at all costs. But when you listen to Mike talk and you realize what the potential uh, fallout is from the stock market um, really cratering, like we like we started to see in February, March, you, you can understand a lot clearer why that they are so desperate to um, to keep the wheels on this thing. Yeah. One last comment from me on the show, and then we'll pivot to uh, to one of your favorite topics, which is gold. And, and I have a question that sort of flows from the Mike Green episode. Uh, but before I do it, one of my sayings is by the time I get to understand it, it's not tradable. So I would just, <laughs> I, would, I would advise our audience that nothing we talk about is trading advice. And if you listen to Mike Green, don't go out and buy a bunch of straddles. Um, but I, one of the most profound insights that he had early, which sort of speaks to his genius, is that if he, if his analysis was true, his opinion was that um, volatility was totally mispriced and yes. that the um, the upcoming volatility in the market meant that the old Black-Scholes models that are sort of standard in valuing options um, were no longer relevant and his investment decision to ha- have a sort of a directional straddle, which I think leaned on on buying call options more than puts, but buying calls and puts near the yep. money um, because the options were underpriced because volatility was, uh, the future volatility was not properly priced in the market. It was the kind of sort of connecting of the dots, brilliant aha moments for me in listening to the podcast um, because he is sort of talks about the shape of the curve and the, and it's being mispriced in the market. And that's the kind of aha moment that I had on the podcast, which was great. And the other big insight was unlike active investors who typically hold 5% of their assets in cash at any one time, um, these large, huge, you know, Vanguard, BlackRock type funds only hold 0.1% of their cash, yeah. uh, of their assets in cash. And just that change alone um, has a massive skew towards um, the buying side uh, compared to sort of some of the, the traditional approaches. And so that leads me to uh, a pivot away from the show, because like you, I agree, our listeners should just go listen to it. It's, it's brilliant. Um, and hopefully this little Cliff Notes version of the show inspires them to do so and makes it um, more or frightens them away them. from it. I'm uh, not sure. Let's yeah. hope not. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a very intelligent audience, and so I'm sure they'll be up for the challenge. Um, gold. Um, as we sit here today, we're recording on Wednesday. Uh, spot gold crossed $1,800 for the first time. The front month contract was trading over 1820 when I looked before we sat down. Um, I wonder, you know, um, our, our, our mutual friend Tony Greer put a tweet out this morning saying all it takes is a minor shift in the allocation towards gold from some of these big funds to see gold really take off. And um, I'm not advising people to buy gold. I own a lot of it um, for separate reasons, but there are people who are interested in gold because of the money printing that's going on and, and the expansion of the M2 supply and the, the big inflation-deflation debate might be missing a bigger phenomenon per Mike Green's analysis, which is... Um, the float in trading in gold could be swamped by, you know, big funds changing their allocation from a half a percent to 2% or 2% to 4%. And I wonder whether having listened to Mike Green um, and then thought about what it means for one of your favorite investment ideas, um, do you have a sort of a different lens that you look at it now? Well, it's it's interesting. I mean, I, I haven't, to be honest with you, I haven't thought about gold through that lens that Mike talked about. I, mean, I, I did a presentation um, back in December 2015 called Nobody Cares, which uh, if anyone's interested, you can watch at my website. Obviously, some of the data is out, out of date, but but importantly, the, the point I made in that was exactly the point you just made. Now is is that you know I, I was talking at a, at a uh, resources conference, and so I said to everyone in the room, "Look, everyone in this room gets it. You all follow gold, and you just don't understand why it hasn't gone up. But the, we're not the problem. It's the people outside this room." And it's it's just the fact that nobody cares outside this room. Once those people outside the room start to care, the size of the market is such that it really only takes a tiny shift in allocation um, for this thing to get really, really interesting. And and again, look, I I, I I always whenever I talk about gold and I talk about it a lot, I I, I make sure that people understand that that the price for me is is really irrelevant. I, I don't follow the gold price. There isn't a price. That I'm looking to buy it. There isn't a price that I'm looking to sell at. Um, 
it's it's a it's a it's a cash reserve. It's an insurance policy. It's all those things. It's not a trade for me. It's not a vehicle to try and speculate and make money. So I, so I do look about it. I look on it uh, differently to to a lot of people who are, who follow the charts, and it's it's great for that. It's 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 volatile. You can follow the charts. You can wing it around. But but it, uh, there are other things that I would prefer to do that with. So you know, with that being said, when I look at what's happening in the world, um, the the reasons to own gold just keep going higher and and the price has steadily done so uh people inside that room that that have been following gold are all scratching their heads thinking you know why the hell is this thing 1800 not 2500 um but again to to me that doesn't matter it's it's moving higher and and the reasons to own it are increasing almost daily it would seem at the moment um and so when that time comes when those reasons become so compelling that there is an allocation shift amongst institutional investors uh, who look in the past have hold have held you know five six seven eight nine ten percent in gold in, in previous cycles. Right now, when I did the presentation, they were at I think point point uh, three or point five percent of their was the average allocation to gold. Nothing, um, and so to go from point three to five percent in terms of the pension fund industry is way too big for the for the gold market to handle. Uh, and and Steph made this point when we talked to Dave Ivan recently that that the, the 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 institutions really can't invest in gold miners because the market's too small, and so as the price goes up and the valuations of these mining companies goes up, um, that creates a bigger market that allows bigger investors to put their money to work in the market. So it, it's just a it's a you know, it's a self reinforcing loop. Um, which is you know an important concept to understand. So uh, you know, do I think the price of gold is going to go high? Yeah, I do. I think it's going to go significantly higher, but perhaps multiples of where it is today. But uh, but that's not what what I'm looking at. What I'm looking at is there are more reasons why I want to own gold to protect my purchasing power. You know, and, and the example I I, I always give, and I'm putting the presentation together now that and I literally was finishing the chart off this morning. Um, when you look at a chart of the Dow Jones uh, and the chart I was putting up goes back to 1895, you look at it and it flatlines. You just don't see any movement up until the 1960s, uh, apart from one little blip for 1929, obviously. Uh, and then you start to see this this slow, uh, gradual rise, and then you you kind of get into the period where it starts to go crazy into the, the 90s, and then you see a fall, and then you see the 2008. Peak, and then you see what we've got today, which makes those two uh, periods of time look ridiculously insignificant. I mean, it's extraordinary when you when you step back and look at this chart. But you take that same chart and and you divide the Dow Jones by the price of gold. So you you, you measure you know the gold ounces, measure the Dow Jones in gold ounces. The Dow is back where it was in the mid nineties in terms of value. So so that's the way I think of gold. I'm thinking I can buy the same number of units of the Dow today uh as i could in 1995 or 1996 with my with my gold coins um so it's that protection of your purchasing power that that's more important to me the, the price of gold is is a bit of a misnomer and, and so uh you can buy the same number of um the same number of units of the dow but you know what you can buy probably five times the number of dollars that you could and people tend to think of buying gold with dollars but think about you know, how many dollars you can buy with your ounce of gold is, is an interesting way to think about it, flip it on its head. And, you know, in, in, in the late 90s, you could buy 200 uh, $1 bills with your gold coin. Today, you can buy 1,800 of them. So I would argue, what, is, what, what does a gold price really matter? It's, it's what it can buy you. And I suspect we're moving into a, a period now where more people start to understand that, more people want to hold some of their reserves in gold. And it does take that. It doesn't take more people wanting to trade it for a price speculation. But if more people want to hold their reserves in gold because they're worried about all this money printing, what it's going to do to fiat currency, then everything else will follow on from that. And that's what I think we're seeing the beginnings of. I think we're actually, despite what people feel about the gold price having run a long way and being exhausted, I think we're in the very early stages of the next bull market when it crosses that 2011 high around 1900, uh, I think you could see some real fireworks. 
Along those lines, let's talk a little bit about the inflation and the deflation debate. Um, it's a debate that was really firing up, um, you know, maybe I would say pre-riot. Um, the, the whole riot scenario has put that a bit on the back burner, but surely it will continue to come back as uh, the Fed continues to, to pump money into the system. How are you looking at that now? You know, near-term deflationary pressures from economic recession offset, more than offset with the longer-term inflationary pressures? Uh, what, what are you watching and, and how are you currently thinking about what might happen with purchasing power in, say, the next 18 months? Yeah, well, I, th- I think we are in that deflationary period. We've, we've seen um, a deflationary event. The, the bond market is certainly telling you that they are way more worried about deflation than inflation. Uh, and I think they're right in the short term. What, what worries me is... Uh, is the kind of lag effect of, of all this money printing and all the stimulus uh, going into the economy? You know what what we've seen um, is is a tremendous inflation in the bond markets. I mean, look look where bond markets are. That's where the inflation's been. Uh, it, it hasn't bled into goods and services. It hasn't bled into commodities. In fact, since the 07 highs, it's kind of bled out of commodities. And so people kind of assume that there is no inflation but but obviously that's not right what we've seen is asset price inflation we've seen bond uh, bond prices at 5000 year highs we've seen equity markets shooting to the moon in in a crazy parabola um and we've you know we've seen we've had our real estate assets go up we've seen them burst they're, they're, they're trying to come back but we haven't seen it in in goods and services or certainly in the CPI if, if you if you if you fill a shopping basket every week you, or you pay for healthcare or you pay for tuition, then you know that prices ain't going down. Um, but what what's probably most important is is expectations. That That's really the thing to watch. So watching people's inflation expectations is important. And, and in, in, funny enough, in that conversation I referenced with Pippa Malmgren, she made the great point. She's, she's in London and, and she, this was in the depths of COVID when everyone was terrified and you know, there was no toilet paper in the supermarkets and stuff. And she was making the great point that, you know, when this is over, when people have a very recent memory of there being no bread on the shelves, will they be willing to pay an extra pound for a loaf of bread? Probably they will. And so it's it's that expectation component that is important because you, you know, right now you have a bunch of companies which would love nothing more than to be able to pass on uh, cost increases to their customers. Um, and if you have a customer that's willing to bear those kind of cost increases because you've recently had the experience of not being able to buy what you want, then it creates a, a perfect situation for that to happen. It, you, it, consumers expect prices to go up. Uh, companies need them to go up. Um, the Fed will tell you they need them to go up. Um, so you, you kind of create that perfect storm. So, so I think inflation expectations are are hugely important to watch, and not just the data, but but just talking to people in your own circle and understanding how people are thinking about this. You know, I, I've I've spoken about this a fair bit recently, but to, listening to a conversation in a, in a coffee shop between a guy and his son talking about how um, you know the parents' monthly expenditure had been like sixty two hundred bucks, and for the last three months they've been spending twelve hundred bucks a month, and how they were never going back to where they were before. Yes, it's anecdotal, but I can also guarantee you they are not the only pair of boomers who are thinking that way. And so if, if that mindset starts to creep in, um, then, you know, it, it, it does create problems. So you, you, can, you can do your own research by listening to people and talking to people, talk to local business owners about, you know, what's going on with them, how, how their business is bouncing back. We, we, get, so, we get so reliant upon official data releases from the BLS or from the, you know, from the Fed or the Census Bureau, whoever it may be, that we take that as a blanket, uh, blanket example of everything that's going on when the, the reality is speaking to people in the community at the ground level will give you a much better sense both of, of the mood of people. And the perfect example of this obviously is going back to the 2016 elections. I mean, if you, if you spoke to people um, and ignored the polls, you knew that that there was a very strong probability that Trump was going to win, not just a possibility. And yet the polls told you something completely different. Um, just observing the number of signs on lawns would tell you in places where 
Trump was polling low, that's not right. You know, I, I've, I've driven through those places and I've seen the amount of, you know, Trump 2016 uh, things and stuck in people's front lawns. So I, I think expectation is, is what we all need to be aware of. And, and the, the higher that expectation goes, that inflation is inevitable, the more dangerous it becomes that, that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. So Grant, um, your, your thoughts on inflation, deflation, and, and the ongoing debate remind me of, of your very first uh, episode of The Endgame, where you had uh, James Aiken on, and, and the, the opening part of that discussion was, was very insightful, as all of your podcasts are. And, and he mentioned, you know, okay, we all thought inflation was coming with QE1, and everybody went and got long, all of the things you get long when you anticipate inflation, and, and inflation never came. And what's different this time? And one of the big differences this time is we have this explosion of fiscal support uh, alongside the monetary expansion that we're seeing. And that actually didn't happen to the same extent uh, whatsoever back in the global financial crisis of, of 08, 09. And so what we're seeing right now is, is this simultaneous expansion of the money supply along with huge um, tailwinds for potential inflationary um, episodes with the fiscal policy that governments all around the world are implementing as a, as a consequence of COVID. Separate to that, I went back and reread um, When Money Dies, which is a classic mm-hmm. book about the Weimar Republic and uh, the, the negative consequences of, of loose money uh, on a potential society. And clearly that's an extreme example and nobody's yet talking about hyperinflation. But I wonder whether one of the risks around expectations, as you just mentioned with, you know, I'm certainly not going to worry about the price of toilet paper when it becomes resupplied. I'm going to worry about the availability. Um, I wonder if the transition from deflation to inflation comes with a bunch of people cheering because it sort of looks like it's economic growth, but in reality it's just prices starting to run. Yeah, I mean that that's that's the danger. I mean the Fed have been talking about how happy they will be to let inflation quote unquote run hot for a little while. Um, which is a very dangerous thing to do because say it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that you know when money dies um, by Adam Ferguson um, if if people listening haven't read that you you can find the PDF online. Uh it's it's an extraordinary book. Um and uh understanding a real world example of what happens in extreme inflation because it's difficult for us living in in uh the uk we haven't had that kind of inflation since i was a really young kid so it didn't really mean anything to me it's certainly same in the us it's been 30 40 years since we've seen that kind of inflation but people in asia people in latin america people over the middle east have you know recent enough experience of inflation getting out of control um so it's much more real to them and i think reading that book uh really brings it home to you takes you back to perhaps the the most uh the most virulent hyperinflation in, in, a, in a major developed economy we've seen in a hundred years and it's uh it's 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 amazing to see how it happens because it happens so fast right it 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 really does once it takes hold happen very fast and so that's when you talk about this may begin with people cheering i think you're absolutely right uh the fed will certainly be cheering uh they'll be talking about how you know we're achieving our targets but uh, anyone that thinks inflation is going to gently climb up to 2% and then hold um, doesn't understand this, this expectation component of it. And, and if people see inflation go from 1% to 2 uh, against the backdrop of shortages and unavailability of products, then they very quickly start to think about it going to 3 and 4 and they very quickly start to think about the things that they should spend their money on. Um, and and it, this is how it happens. So that's how it begins. And it, it will seem innocuous at first, but it's how quickly um, it, it, it gets entrenched. And, and the higher those expectations are, the quicker that happens. So Grant, let's set aside monetary inflation and actually talk about uh, something else that has gotten quite inflated over the last couple of months, and that is the, the Tesla share price. I know that this is a company and a CEO that you follow quite closely. You've produced a documentary on the topic. You've been vocal on the name before. Uh, what do you think of the mania that's been occurring? Uh, well, it, it's, you know, what's interesting, I, I, the, 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 let's talk about the stock and stuff in a minute, but let's talk about the psychology around it, which, are, which to me is the most fascinating thing because um, nothing's really changed, right? Nothing's really changed. The, 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 the people who've done the work, the people who have dug into the balance sheet, looked at the business, looked at they all still believe what they still believe, right? Which was that this this company is 
probably a zero, most likely a fraud, and the whole thing's going to end in tears. The bulls, who tend to really just care about the share price um, for the most part, uh, are cheering the price, and the price has gone crazy. I mean, you look at a chart; it, it's it is a chart to print out and keep because one day it's gonna it's gonna be on plenty of people's walls for good and bad reasons, I'm sure. But when you when you look at what's happening, really, all that's happening, and this goes back to the first thing we we're talking about: the price has moved. That's it. And and how much does that matter? Well, it, does it mean that it's not a fraud and it's not a lousy business? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Uh, Wirecard should disavow anybody of that notion, and it's it's recent enough that that people can get their heads around it. Um, what's happened is the narrative. What's happened is uh, you know all the all the tricks and stuff that we see going on in terms of leaked emails and delivery targets and and lowering expectations so you can beat them. We, we've we've all seen that. But what's been interesting for me is um, the the belief that um, that the bears having seen this this thing go crazy as it has, are all, as you alluded to at the beginning, getting killed. Uh, the bears are getting killed. A lot of the bears, me included, you know, I haven't had a position in Tesla for some time because you could see it was just becoming unhinged. Um, and, it, and it's just it's not a sensible thing to do to fight it on a principle. Do I still think the stock goes to zero? Yeah. Do I still think it's a fraud? I do. But am I going to be short here when this crazy stuff is going on? No, I just don't see the point. But the beauty of being a short seller of this stuff is the higher it goes, the further it has to fall. And likely, the more time you have to get your short back on when you can see that the story is turned. Now, Wirecard will tell you that that may only be a week. But hey, if you missed the first 30% down in Wirecard, you still had you could still make 100% of your money. Um, so there's a time to pick your battles and there's a time not to. And I think for the, for the short sellers, most of whom um, – are probably more experienced in 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 markets and investing and trading and understand how these things work. Uh, most of them will have hedges in place. Most of them will be in and out tactically and 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 maybe putting positions on ahead of results and taking them off quickly and expressing their view via options and, and basically mitigating the losses that they are uh, subject to fighting such a powerful tape. Um, it doesn't mean that. People are short and they're doing nothing about it and they're just watching the price go up in their face. It just doesn't mean that. So, you know, we have this bizarre situation where uh, if it's a gain and the scoreboard's all that counts, then, hey, the thing's at 1,400 or wherever it is now and it's gone crazy. And anyone that's bought the shares at 200, sells them at 1,400, walks away and never looks back, my hat is off to you. You have performed incredibly well. You've had a 7X. Uh, take your money take the round of applause and move on. But of course, this particular stock has become a cause. It's become a cause on the short side just as much as the long side. And so the chance of a lot of people sitting in the back of the car drinking uh, when it crashes into the wall is very, very high, unfortunately. And that's only been exacerbated by seeing that Tesla is is the most uh, increased position on Robinhood in the last week. So there are a lot more inexperienced investors coming into this thing at 1,400 who I guarantee you don't know what an accounts receivable line is on a balance sheet, um, who I guarantee you don't know anything about the SolarCity lawsuits. They don't know anything about the funding secured to it. They don't know any of that stuff. That That's just story. It's just backstory. And, and what matters to most people is the price. So, you know, as I sit here looking at it, uh, I'm, you know, I scratch my head as you do as to, as to why it's doing what it's doing. But it's it's more of a curiosity to me at the moment. When when I see this every day going up start to change, when I start to see the stock can go down on supposedly good news or it doesn't react positively to good news, then I'll get interested again. And you better believe I'll be playing it from the short side because I, I think the thing goes to zero ultimately. Yeah, Grant, I completely agree. I think um, there's certainly short sellers who've lost a lot of money in the name. Oh, no I've doubt. Lost, no doubt. I've lost money in the name. I, I, I feel bad for short sellers who have lost money in the name. At the same time, I've long ago stopped um, banging my head against a brick wall and expecting a different result. And this, this name has actually, I think, become a metaphor for where we are in this part of the cycle. Um, when you have bankrupt companies issuing new old equity um, from Chapter 11 proceedings and you see a company that um, hasn't grown deliveries or the top line in seven quarters being, you know, 
quadrupling in price from the bottom just three months ago, um, you know that these are the types of things that you don't see near market bottoms. And I wonder <laughs> whether the emergence of the, the David Day Trader phenomenon and um, the, the Robin Hood phenomenon and, and then, you know, it all sort of circles back to even what Mike Green was talking about. Like, th these are the types of things we see near, near the end of near the end of bull markets. And, and one guest that we have scheduled for next week, which we're very thrilled, is, is Trevor Milton. And, um, and he's the executive chairman of Nikola, and he's going to come on and make his case, which we're very glad that he's chosen our podcast to do that. Um, but he came to market via a SPAC, which is also another you know, a special purpose acquisition company, another very pro-cyclical phenomenon that you typically don't see near bottoms. Um, when you look across the landscape of where we are right now, especially when you juxtaposition the sort of things we're seeing with um, the underlying, underlying economic activity and your latest things that make you go, hmm, letter, which I thought was great. You talk about the imminent wave of bankruptcy. Sort of talk to us a little bit about the, you know, on the one side we have this stocks only go up and on the other side you see what's actually going on in the fundamentals uh, of the economy. Um, when do these two things meet? Well, it's it's a, it's a it's a great question. I guess it's the question everybody who's skeptical about this run is asking themselves. You know, at what point does it matter? Um, and I, I debated this with someone the other day, talking about how well maybe they, this can just keep going up. The Fed will just keep juicing it and throwing stimulus at it, and then and if it gets shaky, the Fed will say they'll buy stocks um, and put another floor under it. But at the end of the day, the the, the stock market, um, you know, is is supposed to reflect the economy. Um, and right now it's not doing that. And so the, the bet is here, does the stock market ultimately go back to reflecting the economy, in which case it needs to be an awful lot lower than it is now? Or is this disconnect either sustainable, uh, which I would argue it probably isn't, or, or is it rational, which I can guarantee it isn't? So for me, when I think about it, let, let's posit that the Fed says, okay, we're going to come in and buy stocks because the market starts to wobble again. Um, ultimately, what you're likely to see is you're going to see companies start to, uh, you know, in the next month or two, you're going to start to see companies cutting guidance. You're going to start to see a lot more concrete ground-up data in terms of the damage done to businesses. Um, you're going to see more companies go bankrupt. You know, we lost Brooks Brothers uh, yesterday, I think. Um, you're going to see a lot of these companies that that the the, the Robin Hood crowd. And I, don't, I don't want to wail on the Robin Hood crowd. I'm, I'm only using it because the Hertz is just a prime example. How you had a company trying to issue equity which they called worthless, um, and they were clearly targeting the Robin Hood traders and their ilk who are inexperienced, don't understand the capital stack, and didn't realize that the equity recovery value is is potentially zero. Um, that that's that's what's that's what's going on. So if the Fed step in to buy stocks, uh, yes, they can soak up some selling. But once this, once the economy, the economic damage that's been done by COVID starts getting reflected in, in in reduced guidance and companies laying off staff and talking about how dire their business has been, uh, particularly when you understand that most of them will give you the best possible scenario. They're not going to talk about how bad it is. Most of them will make bad things sound as palatable as they can. Um, then you realize that institutional money, which dwarfs that of the day trading crowd, uh, has both a fiduciary duty to sell these equities and an opportunity to do so at valuations which they couldn't possibly hope to, uh, to realize for these shares. So you will see selling. They will see you know, your, your, your career risk, which at the moment is is the FOMO trade is that you can't you just cannot miss out on this rising market because your career's at stake. Once it turns and once the economic damage is starting to be revealed, then your career risk is not getting out of these things and not because you 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 if you lose a fortune in a company that tells you its business is is as you know halved and yet the share price has doubled and you as a fiduciary don't sell those shares and your your defense is when angry stakeholders tell you about how much they've lost is well we didn't sell them because the market was going up and we didn't want to miss out on that yeah that doesn't work so the career risk changes at that point and unless the fed is willing to nationalize the stock market which hey who knows at this at this point in time maybe they do that i don't know but unless they're willing to put a bid under every equity on the planet um I don't think that's a viable option. So, so I do, 
I do think that uh, the answer to the question, when is this going to start to reflect reality again, it's as companies start revealing just how much damage has been done to their businesses in the last three or four months. And I suspect it's it's much worse than the, the data would have you have you believe at the moment. So Grant, as you were talking, I was reminded yet again of another great episode, um, episode four of the super terrific happy hour where you had Cy Jacobs on. And he tells a great story about obvious arbitrage presenting itself to him in the REIT market where yes. preferreds, uh, which are higher in the cap table than the equity are selling at half a book value while the equity is selling at three times yeah. book value. And his trade, which was a, a really smart one, which is sell calls against the equity and buy the preferreds, yep. um, sort of pays for itself. Um, and, and he expected the jaw to snap shut um, you know, in both directions, win on both legs uh, of, his, uh, of his two-sided trade. Um, I see a similar phenomenon going on right now, and I'm sort of, you know, as we're reaching the sort of closing moments of our of our time with you, um, I'm fascinated by these little arbitrages that show up in the market and why they persist. So just yesterday, I won't name the the stock because it's thinly traded, and I don't want to, you know, but there was a company that is has not yet filed for bankruptcy, so the equity still trades on the market, but it has defaulted on several of its bonds. And the CDS auction went off yesterday with a 1.4% recovery, <laughs> meaning the bondholders are looking at a 98.6% wipeout. Yep. And the equity still trades with a positive market cap of over $50 million. How does that happen? Well, look, it's, it's, it's just irrationality, right? It's, it's, uh, what's that great quote from Charles Mackay about men lose their centers in herds but only regain them slowly one by one? It's exactly right, and we've we've reached that point. There's a, there's a herd mentality to to this 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 recent day trading phenomenon, which is, as we know, right, it, none of it is born on an understanding of finance or an understanding of even the companies involved here. Um, it's really these things are going up, and it, it's it's like being at the casino and we throw a few bucks at this and it goes up every day. It, that, that's it, and it sounds simplistic. But it really is, and you know, and Sai's point, which I'm glad you remind me of, is is exactly what happens ultimately. Is that the the inexperienced investors who are throwing money at the wall, hoping some of it sticks because it's stuck yesterday and it's stuck the day before and it's stuck the day before that, are providing tremendous opportunities for those who understand how finance works and can put that trade on that Sai talked about. Um, and and I'm sure he will make money on both legs, and, and he will have put it on in a way that buys him the maximum amount of time before uh, being right uh, and mitigating the risk that things can go crazy. And he said, you know, he said that the the the, the equity side had gone crazy and it had gone up way more than where he first started to to sell the calls. But he understood that, and he's patient. And ultimately, when the day traders are wiped out and the inexperienced uh, people who are getting involved in this learn the, the same painful lesson that, that everybody who comes into this learns ultimately, which is a, a great shame. We saw this in 2000. Um, uh, you know, a, a generation of, of, of investors are going to be scared away from the stock market when, when they see how quickly these things can go to zero. So um, it, it's, it's, it is a great shame. Uh, you know, as I said before, hats off to anybody who's been dabbling in this stuff, has has taken their money off the table and realized those profits, then you know, that's tremendous. And I'm extremely happy for them. I, I don't wish people to lose money, quite the opposite. I just wish people would understand the risks they're taking and the and the fire they're playing with, because um there are plenty of guys like Sai who are smart enough to take advantage of the dislocations in these markets and just wait until gravity returns, which it inevitably will, I'm afraid. So there are these dislocations and some arbitrage opportunities like the one that, that TC just talked about. And they're at the fringes, you know, they're they're yeah. they're not the majority of the market and, and what's occurring, but they certainly can be identified. But in total, you know, on balance, the ownership of the equity market is concentrated in such a small percentage of the U.S. We'll just talk about U.S. for example. Um, you know, I think it's ninety-two percent of equities are owned by one percent of the population. Right, right. This is such a concentrated ownership that I don't. Does wouldn't that have an influence on whether or not this would be righted to the fundamentals? I mean, it seems much more able to be protected when it's such a smaller group that 
I should say, the disconnect between the casino that is the equity markets and the fundamentals of the underlying companies. The underlying companies are so fragmented and yet the ownership is so concentrated that I don't know that they have to be reconnected at a certain point. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a good point and it's well taken. Um, but I think uh, I, 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 I always question that data simply because I don't know how they break down the ownership of the Black Rocks, the Vanguards. Um, it was stunning when I read it. I thought that can't possibly be true. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying yeah. I know it's wrong. I, I question it and I, and I haven't dug into the data enough to understand it. But, it, but it, look, if, if, it's, if it's so tightly held, then um, you would expect that the people that tightly hold it understand what they're doing or they're investing through vehicles who are competent fiduciaries and also understand what they're doing. They understand, as I said, the capital stack. They understand these things. They're, they're not just people who've got a few bucks and they're throwing it at the markets. And if that happens, then, look, when, when as I said, the business – the, the hit to business is is revealed, then those investors have a choice to make. Do we just hang on to the stuff and believe the Fed has got our backs and that they can actually negate this kind of hit to the economy? You know, and they were talking, the Atlanta Fed was talking about a 50% hit to GDP on a quarterly basis at one point. Is the Fed big enough to do that? Uh, and look, place your bets. I mean, maybe they are. I suspect that uh, at some point it matters whether – the economy is – the recovery is V-shaped, which I think we can all probably safely assume it's not going to be. Um, who knows what shape it will be? At the moment, a good friend of mine in Singapore I was talking to last night said he thinks it's a lowercase h, which is one of the letters that I haven't heard of yet. But if you look at it, it kind <laughs> of like makes sense. Sounds like a boot stamp. <laughs> <laughs> it it kind of makes sense. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, I don't know how many letters there are left. But but look, it, it, at this point, when you when you have this kind of run in the equity markets – and you're facing this kind of backdrop, then is it prudent as a fiduciary to take profits off the table and, and maybe give up the last 10% of this if it goes on for 10%? I would argue that it is. Uh, and you have a call then on whether the Fed can't save the market. The, the simple truth is we don't know, right? We're all guessing about the future, and that's what, that's what we try and do whenever we talk about this stuff. So, so nobody knows, but you have to try and you know, handicap the likely outcomes and to me, the, the handicapping that liquidity is going to be the solution. And uh, TC, you mentioned my most recent piece, and the point I was making there was exactly this, is that what they've done so far is a solution, albeit temporary, to a liquidity problem. But when you hit the solvency problem stage of this progression, it's not so easy for the Fed to print jobs. It's not so easy for the Fed to print consumer spending. Um, so I, I think we're approaching that phase now. And for me, I feel that what people have been given by this rally in the last three months is an unexpected gift to be embraced and, and realized. Um, and then just sit back for a minute, wait and see what happens next. Um, because if the market continues to go up, but the economy continues to deteriorate, I, I wouldn't be uncomfortable missing out on the, the rest of that rally. I wouldn't be uncomfortable missing out on a new record high when I'm looking at the kind of backdrop we're looking at not just in the U.S. economy, but the global economy, and the you know the, the forecasts from the likes of the IMF, which are getting worse for the recovery, not better, and the World Bank the same, tell me that, that there is still a great deal of danger out there. Yeah, I agree. And you know, Grant, um, as always, it's been a real pleasure to have you on. You're very generous with your time. Uh, we really much, very much enjoy your your intellect and the discourse. Uh, maybe a closing few thoughts from you on what's next for Grant. What do you got cooking? Um, what are you going to do to, to kill the time in a uh, ongoing COVID uh, end of wave one prior to wave two uh, type situation? Uh, talk us about what's uh, what's in the pipeline for Grant Williams. Well, I'm going to keep I'm going to keep writing my letter, uh, and I'm going to keep doing this podcast because the, the the conversations are as edifying for me as they are for everybody out there listening to them. So I I, I love having them. Um, and then once once I can travel again, I've got a, I've got a few things that that I'm going to try and. Do, but I can't really do them until the world opens up again. So once uh, once it does, rest assured, I will I will let you all know what I'm up to, and uh, and hopefully it'll be it'll be a bit of fun. Well, it's been a delight, Grant. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Anytime. Thanks for having me, guys. Double, double toil and trouble. Let's don't say the market's a bubble. 
Think instead of a hot air balloon. It's gonna come down, but we hope not too fast or soon. Fillet of a fenny snake in the cauldron, boil and bake. My puts are expiring, how long will this take? Eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog. Check out Grant Williams' awesome blog. Add his fork and blindworm sting, lizard's legs and howlet's wing. Check out Grant Williams' Endgame podcast. It's his latest thing. For a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth, boil and bubble. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble. Cool it with a baboon's blood, then the charm is firm and good. The Fed cooks up many potions like these. Grant Williams helps us see what else Jay Powell has up his sleeves. My apologies to William Shakespeare. And we do hope you have a great day.